0: The uh,
1: the The
2: the The
1: Hold you! What is this? Who are you,
2: fogies? We are thy caretakers, young scholar, harbingers of silent wisdom.
1: Ego, Wakarimaska.
2: I assure you, we do indeed, Sprecken in the Colonial. You have been gone some time, old Matty. Lost in those god-forsaken mountains.
1: They're literally called the house of God, you swine. How long was I out, prune bag?
2: As of this particular day, over three months. Three months? That means. Thy podcast is as dead as you were. I'm afraid so. But fear not, for the podcast world is a hydra. When one falls, two more shall take thy place.
1: There's no replacing delicious words, Edward. Now quiet. At the rate your throat is disintegrating, it sounds like it's disintegrating by the syllable.
2: We will not
1: die. Retire, then.
2: We will not retire. ...until you have returned what is owed.
1: I never asked to come back.
2: Nevertheless, you must return what you have taken
1: from us. I never asked you to learn Latin. That time spent is not my fault. Who are you?
2: We are the masters of...
1: Wait a minute. You're those damn librarians.
2: To be returned... By October 21st, Journey to the Center of the Earth, by Jules Verne. Hoof! left that at the mountain top. The Sun Also Rises, by Ernest Hemingway. I'm keeping it. The Bell Jar, by Sylvia Plath. Mine also. Your Heiress Diary, by Paris Hilton. What of that one? Thou alleged man of literature! You may have that one. Tis the one we cared for! Thou art such a fool! (laughs) Farewell, fool! The great book is ours, my friends!
1: So, they have locked me in this weird literary catacomb, taking the Paris Hilton book. And I am the fool. I mean, all I have left in here are books and no source of food. They've revived me from the dead, purely to lock me in here so they could recover that Paris Hilton book. But am I? Well, Quixote, looks like your old pal Matty has come back to life just to die again. But not to worry, I'm not planning on leaving you again anytime soon. Delicious word sandwich is going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever with cheese. Why, we've got all the food we need right here. That's right, dear friends. Those foolish fogies have left me with three delicious word sandwiches. Like I'd leave a book on top of a mountain. I can't believe they bought such a ridiculous tall tale. Obviously, I used it to hang glide from the peak to the snow leopard carcass once I spotted it. Oh, speaking of the snow leopard, turns out it was just looking for a will to live. Yikes. Welcome to Delicious Word Sandwich, my chiostes, back from the dead. <music> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Them some crispy pickles. Welcome to Delicious Word Sandwich, my chiostes. I'm old Maddie. And I'll tell you what's not so crispy. My absence. I have many goals for this here podcast. To be earnest. To be enriching. To be entertaining. Strange. Alas, perfect was on that list when I started. Hiding in between the spaces of the prose. And so I journeyed to the center of my head. Fell, rather. And took a hell of a long time to get out. By the time I did, I lost all rhythm or grasp of how to run this thing myself. It's a lot Running a one man show, in every sense emotionally, physically, spiritually, egoily, but in all of those accounts, I'd like to think it's worth it all the more. And then, in between a new job, moving, getting a cat, Vietnam, life, and being trapped on the snowy peaks of Kilimanjaro, I found a lot of things that were easily turned into excuses when there shouldn't have been any. There weren't any, really. Nevertheless, I am learning more and more that nothing is wasted so long as it has meaning. And while I'm sure all four of my loyal listeners out there despaired at my absence, know that our suffering in snows and limbos was nay for naught. Indeed, now we cast our little smarty into this bottomless bag of skittles that is the podcast world, armed with two boons from our trial. One, we know this show exists out of a love for books, sandwiches, and me. And it just isn't going away. It's too good an idea. Two, we're probably the only podcast that's first official episode is a grand return. And that is why I believe this little show of ours, my Chiotes, is on track to being something really, really special. Existing simply for the joy and meaning of its own existence, with a purpose bound out of love, not obligation, to you, to me, and to books, and to sandwiches, and to Bill Murray, and to Audible. Please sponsor me. Welcome to Delicious Word Sandwich. Today, we're reviewing The Snows of Kilimanjaro by Ernest Hemingway, the greatest writer of all time's greatest short story. But before we review the new, I think it's time we finally conclude the old. Before I got lost on the peaks of Kilimanjaro, packed in my Russians, I packed the Oh, the Places You'll Go sandwich by Dr. Seuss and by Ol' This sandwich was constructed of multi-grain fairy bread. Yes, that was a crime against humanity that I do not regret. Green eggs, cream cheese, gouda, sweet chili sauce, seasoned with paprika. I won't lie to you, it was an interesting sandwich. And it was very dense between the gouda and the green eggs. And it really exploded with flavor. Unfortunately, the sweet multitude of flavor that would come out of hundreds and thousands was immediately overpowered by the combination of gouda and cream cheese. And, of course, the creme de la creme, the green eggs. It was a real obtuse brunt of pesto flavor that attacks in that sandwich. It's dense... It's heart-clogging, but in that good way. And when you finish, you know, for better or worse, you don't want to eat any more. And that's the O, the places you'll go sandwich. The places you'll go, probably to the hospital if you have too many. And now, for the news. Or as I like to call it, the yeast. While we're waiting for that pesky yeast to rise. Also trapped in this catacomb, I decided that if I got summoned into this mess, I could probably summon my way out. So... After a short break, we'll figure out how that went. But before I go, my friends, in relation to that lovely explanation that I gave before, I don't want to say apology because that's a rotten way to start a series, I would like to address another reason why there was such a massive delay between me getting trapped on a mountain and dying and doing an appetizer. The other places you'll go sandwich was not a very complicated sandwich. I had to go do a bit of cheese shopping, and I scramble a mean batch of eggs in my time and just had to mix that with pesto. And multi-grain fairy bread, despite the moral reluctance, was easy enough to do. Unfortunately, I am but a poor bohemian, trapped in a catacomb, recording as much as I can before I run out of air. So, I was wondering that... As I describe these sandwiches and dissect these books, you at home listening in the great abyss might decide I might try and make that sandwich myself and then send to my website or to the librarians that are keeping me captive your thoughts on that sandwich that I constructed from your favorite books. It's a great call to arms and I think it will help us really build a community because I will be honest, no matter how good a sandwich I construct in theory, I am a rotten chef, as in, I use rotten ingredients because they're cheaper. So, my Quiotes, you would be doing me a righteous favour, not just to me, but to yourself, if you could go out and make these delicious word sandwiches yourselves, collaborating with me as I try to make them with what ingredients I can archaeologically extract from these here coffins. Alright, for reals this time, I will do a quick little summoning to see if I can transport myself out of this catacomb. And while the yeast rises, we will go through the news of literature, as much as I could gather before being trapped. Well, that could have gone better. So, in short, my Quiotes, One doodled pentagram in the floor later, I've summoned a demon, which is now running amok in the tunnels, swearing to tear my face off and use... My skin as the book cover, Misery style, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Apparently, the original ending of Stephen King's Misery included Annie Wilkes skinning the captured writer and using his skin, tanned and leathered, as a hard book cover for the one and only manuscript of Misery's Return. It's a horrifying ending, and I'm very glad Stephen King didn't go through with it. Speaking of horror stories, my time on the peaks of Kilimanjaro after finding the snow leopard's carcass was no picnic, even after I ate the carcass. There I was, being assaulted by sharp blizzard winds, and all of my haunted memories rising to the top of the mountain. Does that make sense? Probably not. Anyway, what did make sense was the sparrow that found me in my hour of need. What did it bring, you ask? Food? Water? A means of escape? Nay, it brought me something far more important. The latest issue of The New Yorker. Sponsor me, New Yorker. In this edition of The New Yorker, it had a summary of the top books of 2018. And I thought, being in my last year on Earth, I would read out The New Yorker's favourite books of 2018 that I have not read but reading the summaries, I think I'll have a few good thoughts, maybe. First on the list is The Ramp Hollow, The Ordeal of Appalachia by Stephen Stoll, published by Hill and Wang. Generational cycles of dispossession from the time of feudalism in England to the contemporary United States have contributed to the region's deprivation, according to Stoll, a history professor at Fort Hamm. He outlines the focus of his book in simple terms, I am interested in how people get kicked off land and why we don't talk about them. That is a very pertinent thing to bring up in this day and age. In Australia, Australia Day is coming up. A very controversial day for very valid reasons. I think this is a book that everyone needs to read. Especially as we embark on a new tomorrow, where the point of no return to the Earth itself is fast approaching. And as we approach the end, it's time for us to look back on what we've done admit the parts we're ashamed of, and try to do better. Maybe even not destroy the world. Ramp Hollow, The Ordeal of Appalachia, by Stephen Stoll. That sounds like a delicious word sandwich for laters, my friends. Next, we have Water by, forgive me, dear author, Akwake Emezi, published by Grove, and it's about a young Nigerian-born woman's multiple personalities narrate this debut novel as the mental illness that has haunted her since she was an infant, take root. New York Times reviewer Tariro Mzazowe, sorry, praised the story's moving portrayal of a struggle against something that exists within, a mental anguish that no amount of reasoning can conquer. Whew. You know, humanity's been around for a long time, and we've been writing novels even longer. That's not true. But... We have often tried to look within ourselves and understand the workings of our psyches. I've been recently addicted to the show Frasier, a psychiatrist, and I don't think even he knows what's going on, judging by the amount of issues that he has. That sounds like a fascinating, fascinating insight into what it is to have multiple personalities. An area of psyche that I'm very fascinated by. My favourite Batman villain being Two-Face, and also you're thinking, well, what if it's like Split by M. Night Shyamalan? Please stop thinking that. Split only worked because James McAvoy is a great actor, not because M. Night Shyamalan is a good filmmaker. Yeah, I said it. Sorry, this is a book podcast. Moving back to books. Death in the Air, The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and The Strangling of a City by Kate Winkler Dawson. Published by Hatchet. In 1952, Londoners were being choked by pollution, leaving thousands dead. Meanwhile, the city faced another lethal threat, John Reginald Christie, who killed several women and buried them in his garden. The book draws on interviews and archival research to braid the two stories together. My god. That sounds dark, but pretty damn awesome. I think I'm going to check out Death in the Air, The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and The Strangling of a City by Kate Winkler Dawson. Sounds like a very bitter, sour, and somehow delicious word sandwich. Next, Ghosts of the Tsunami, Death and Life in Japan's Disaster Zone, by Richard Lloyd Parry, published by Picador. Years after the 2011 disaster, conclusions and remedies remained elusive. This book, by a veteran correspondent in Asia, captures the human toll as felt by Japan's remote villages and communities, which bore the brunt of the tragedy. Our reviewer, Pico Laya, praised the author, writing, In the tsunami, he has found a horrifying metaphor for those subliminal forces that swirl underneath the manicured surfaces of Japan. I think I might sit down with that one for a day and just knock it out, because I think it would hit you like a ton of bricks. Once the water's washed away, you're a changed person. Kind of like a really, really aggressive baptism in a book. The surfaces of Japan, if you ask me, are extremely fascinating. One of my favorite movies is Only the Bad Sleep Well by Akira Kurosawa and other Kurosawa pictures about modern Japan life at its time, like Akuru, The High and the Low. And I'm sure there's another good one. You can just see how the manicured surface of Japan is a very good description because for better or worse, it has very much honed its own extremely deep, rich, and labyrinth-like culture. Yeah, I think that sounds pretty insightful. And that, my friends, is the bulk of the news. I'll just do a quick summary. We've had our top five books from the New Yorker. Thank you, New Yorker, for not... Officially lending me that text, but I enjoyed reading it out, and I hope my chiotis enjoyed listening to it Next we have a great Nobel Prize winning British author died at age 85 His name, well, I hope I pronounce it right this time So I'm just gonna take my second, take a moment. His name Alas is V.S. Naipaul. I really hope I got that right. I'm afraid I have not read any of his books, Apparently he is most famous for his seminal 1961 novel A House for Mr. Biswas. He died peacefully on Friday, his wife Lady Naipaul announced. According to The Independent, he was a giant in all that he achieved, and he died surrounded by those he loved, having lived a life which was full of wonderful creativity and endeavour. Well, I hope he died satisfied with his achievements, knowing that he left many healthy, nutritious and delicious word sandwiches behind. Oh, and Chiotes, if any of you are a fan of VS Naipaul, my condolences and know that enjoying his legacy is the best way to remember him, because when you, someone writes a book, they leave part of themselves behind to communicate with you. It's the best form of time travel. Other than that, we've got Roald Dahl's Matilda, Quil- Quentin Blake Reimagines Beloved Character on 30th Anniversary, and... Haruki Murakami, who recently released a new book and had a short story in The New Yorker, which was extremely poignant, with phrases such as a circle with many centres and no circumference. I think that was the phrase. He made the Bad Sex and Fiction Award. Congratulations, Haruki! I myself have read several of Haruki Murakami's work, including, unfortunately, the sex scenes. And I can confirm that they are very awkward, however poetically written. But that's enough horsing around. Now that literature news is over, it's time that we get some advice from the greatest writer of all time, Ernest Papa Hemingway. Or, as I like to say in this segment, advice from Papa. And then we'll move on to his great short story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, after this break. And we're back to Delicious Word Sandwich with your pal, Old Matty. Before I begin on this next segment, I think I should do a disclaimer that shall inform the rest of this whole series. Because this series is going to go on until the end of time. So, Ernest Hemingway means a lot to me. He is my favourite writer, and in my opinion, he is the best writer of all time. Now, that's completely subjective, and if you want to argue about it with me, I'll be happy to do that. I mean, you'll never convince me otherwise, but it'll be an insightful debate. Ernest Hemingway, to me, is the best writer not just because of his stories and the the way his prose kind of personally relates to me. It's also because he had a willingness to experiment with the art of prose itself. Writers like David Foster Wallace, Haruki Murakami, all of them play with the unseen formative nature of prose. You know, Foster Wallace used his footnotes and Hemingway used his iceberg theory. My favourite thing about these kinds of writers is how they... Hone and develop these unique styles. When you put a word down on paper, no matter who you are, that word is that word. But these writers manage to see prose in a way that they can uniquely have a certain kind of style to each brushstroke of their books. And I think that's really quite inspiring. Other than that, Ernest Hemingway is my favourite, not just because of his work on the page, but off. He was a swashbuckling rogue of a legend, really. So please forgive my fanaticism, it's not going away, and I hope you enjoy it. Ernest Hemingway was also unique, he had a hell of a lot of conviction, he was honest, but like, he would tell a truth, he would believe it's the truth, but it as what Michel de Montaigne would call an untruth, in that a lot of what he's, not a lot, a lot of what he said did happen, but it is grossly exaggerated, a, a trait I also share, I must admit. But what I also love about him is that he once said that to talk about writing is to take away the colour from a butterfly's wings. And I think that's absolutely true. And so did he. But that didn't stop Hemingway on writing, in which he bestowed pages and pages of advice and opinions on what it is to write. This is Ernest Hemingway to his wife, Mrs. Pauline Pfeiffer, in 1933. Alas, in the Hemingway canon, Pauline Pfeiffer is known as the woman who Hemingway left his first wife, Hadley Hemingway, to be with, which I will be blunt and say was one of the biggest regrets of Hemingway's life, true love that he never got again. Pauline Pfeiffer is also very relevant today because the woman in the snows of Kilimanjaro is directly based on Pauline Pfeiffer with elements of Hadley. And now, without further ado, some advice from Ernest Hemingway. About what writing is. I am trying to make, before I get through, a picture of the whole world, or as much of it as I have seen. Boiling it down always, rather than spreading it out thin. Boiling it down, never spreading it out thin. Well, my dear Kiotis. I'd dare say our good Papa Hemingway was a man who knew how to make a good delicious word sandwich. In 1933, that's almost... Let me do a bit of math here. Boop, boop, boo boop, boop, boo. That's 86 years. If I'm not mistaken, I probably am. But 86 years before delicious word sandwich was even a thing. That's how ahead of his time Ernest Hemingway was. One final point about Ernest Papa Hemingway. I hope you don't mind me using the the nickname Papa. It's a point where... If you read his books and you become intimately familiar with him as a writer and as a person through biographies and autobiographies and just his writing, you eventually, and though in person you should never actually call him Papa unless he bestows that honour onto you, I think posthumously it's not too disrespectful to kind of assume that kind of relationship with this phantom idol. Because when you have that kind of familiarity with someone's voice through books, I think it's a beautiful thing. Though you don't know each other personally, you feel like they know you, and you feel like they kn- you know them. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Funny story about the nickname Papa. When I got familiar enough with Hemingway, and kind of fanatical enough to start referring to him as Papa Hemingway, I got really excited about this nickname, and it kind of lost all meaning to me in terms of what Papa actually is, which is, you know, in Western civilization, it's dad, or it's like a thing for dad, and it's been appropriated in all manner of ways. And one time I was was playing a basketball game, and I wanted my friend to pass the ball to me. And to throw my opponents off, I decided to yell to him, Papa, so he would pass the ball to me. He was traumatized by this event, which was hilarious to me. In my mind, I was referring to Hemingway. I was doing my friend a great honor by yelling Hemingway's nickname at him in order for him to pass me the ball. I completely forgot in that one moment, and unfortunately remembered immediately thereafter that Papa is a way to call someone Dad. So that's how I called my good friend Dad while playing basketball, loudly in front of strangers. Alright. On to the next segment. Don't mind the page flipping, because we're all a bunch of page flippers up in here. We'll be back after this break with the bread, the background of the snows of Kilimanjaro. And welcome back quick update on how your pal old maddie's doing underneath the library in these here tombs well i've started a small fire. uh the demon is nowhere in sight so i'm hoping he started his own little cozy campsite with blackjack and hookers and i have found my copy of the snows of kilimanjaro which i will henceforth convert into a sandwich and soon i will have my dinner oh what's that hark something approaches I HAVE arisen. Oh, good morrow, bread. Well done, my demonic friend. You're clearly playing the metaphor of the bread, which has now risen with the yeast.
2: I will spread your blood thick over my body.
1: Your body being the bread. <laughs> you're so right. Bread is where it all begins, where our blood is first spread, as my well-read new best friend says. I will taste delicious. Oh, it will taste delicious, sport. What? Now quiet, I gots to kill me some Manjaros. The Snows of Kilimanjaro was written by Ernest Hemingway and published in August 1936 in Esquire magazine. At this point, he had left Hadley and was married to Pauline Pfeiffer, who was quite wealthy and well-to-do, as is the woman in The Snows of Kilimanjaro. During this story, Ernest Hemingway had gone through a transition. While he was with Hadley in the 1920s in Paris, him, his wife, and his son, Bumby, were quite poor and, in true Hemingway exaggerations, in spite of in a movable feast, him often going out for a glass of wine while he wrote, he was describing himself of having to hunt rats for dinner for his wife and his son. Contrarily, now with Pauline, he wanted for nothing. He wrote The Snows of Kilimanjaro, mostly in his house that is still today in Key West. But enough kind of trivia. Alright, so here is a key passage from Papa Hemingway by E. Hiochna, reflecting on Snows of Kilimanjaro. This is where I wrote The Snows of Kilimanjaro, upstairs here, and that's as good as I have any right to be. Pauline and I had just come back from Africa, and when we hit New York, the newsboys asked me when my next project was and I said to work hard and earn enough money to get back to Africa. It ran in the papers that way. Everything and nothing. So there were those specifics with that story. But there was a hell of a lot more. By the time I finished The Snows of Kilimanjaro, I had put into it the material for four novels, distilled and compressed. Nothing held back because I had declared to win with it. It took me a long time to write another short story after that because I knew I could never write another as good as Kilimanjaro. Don't think I ever did. I would be inclined to disagree with Hemingway. Personally, I quite enjoy the subtler short stories as much as the big ones like Snows of Kilimanjaro, such as The Sea Change and The Undefeated. One thing that I find interesting with what he says there is, I had declared to win with it. Something I have gathered from my readings of Ernest Hemingway's kind of psyche is that he was determined to beat or defeat other authors. One example is Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote, My Quixotes. He decided that he was going to beat Cervantes. That's something to be said about the way Hemingway kind of viewed prose in as much an emotional level as he did in a mechanical level, in that he saw and dissected what Cervantes did with the prose in Don Quixote and then in his own story, like For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is the one I think Hemingway declared to have beaten Kiyoti with, he tried to achieve and then surpass in his own style everything that Kiyoti achieved, thus beating him. Very interesting kind of aspect of Psyche. I myself describe myself as having an inferiority complex, and I think, in a way, Hemingway very much the- shared the same thing, this need to... It's an interesting kind of way to phrase it. In any case, I'm glad he's proud of The Snows of Kilimanjaro. It's truly a great short story, and he achieved a lot with it. And that is why, amongst so many other reasons, he is the shining hero for this little podcast, Delicious Word Sandwich. Moving on, an article that I found in this little book was by poet Ernest Walsh, the magazine's editor, in which he prophesied, Hemingway selected his audience. His rewards will be rich. But thank God he will never be satisfied. He is of the elect. He belongs. It will take time to wear him out. And before that, he will be dead. I think this is an extremely prophetic and exceptionally apt review of Ernest Hemingway. And it is most exampled in The Snows of Kilimanjaro, in which Hemingway, thinking about his own death, imagines a writer who is constantly thinking about stories he was meant to write. He feels burnt out. He's very cynical, but there was still a lot more he wanted to do. He was wearing out, but he wasn't worn out yet. He wasn't done, and then he died. Before moving on to a bit more of the true story behind The Snows of Kilimanjaro, one thing that I found extremely poignant in the book when he's more or less relating his personal, honest thoughts about his relationship with his wife at the time are the thoughts he has when it's not her fault that he was through when they met, that he had no love left to give, and that he couldn't love by the time they were married. I found that extremely hard-hitting in terms of he's pretty much already saying, and it was plain to see to pretty much every one of his wives following Hadley, that he never fell out of love with Hadley. Indeed, after he became engaged with Pauline and there was still a chance left, for him to get back with Hadley. He sent a letter to her saying that he would come back if he if she wanted him to. And she said no, because, frankly, he, he loved Hadley, but he loved his ambition more. And what he gave up was not really... He didn't really give up Hadley for another love. He gave ha- up Hadley for more chance to grow and swashbuckle and adventure across the world, getting more information for stories. And pretty much writing was his life. Yeah. Hard-hitting stuff. Anyway, here's a true story behind the old night ski lodge poker games in the snows of Kilimanjaro. Well, the one who liked skiing, who really liked doing things, was Hadley. In the snows of Kilimanjaro, quick side note, uh, the woman is described as being a good sport, always wanting to do the things that the writer wanted to do, pretty much being as e- an equal in adventuring to him. And something the woman keeps bringing up as he is dying, and he's more or less lamenting his, his life choices, which is quite sad. But yeah, fun fact, um, the women in Hemingway's stories are usually a combination of people he knew rather than based on one singular person. This attribute of the woman in the snows of Kilimanjaro was more attributed to Hadley, who was often described as a good sport and always wanted to do many adventurous things, as did Hemingway. Well, the one who liked skiing, who really liked doing things, was Hadley. I remember one winter Hadley and I went skiing in Germany at a lodge run by Herlint. I was an instructor and we earned our keep that way. But the previous season, eleven of Herlint's fifteen guests had been lost in an avalanche. Herlint had warned them about the snow, but they had disregarded his advice. Well, losing eleven guests is a very poor advertisement for a ski school. So the season I was there with Hadley, there were no guests at all, and to make matters worse, there were terrible snowstorms, one right on top of the other. During the storms, there were all-night poker games. Saint-Voix to open, and the principal antagonists at the poker table were Herlint and the proprietor of a rival ski lodge. Herlint lost his lodge, all the ski equipment, and a piece of property he owned in Bavaria. Have an account of that in the snows of Kilimanjaro. Call him Herlint. Subtle, Hemingway. Of course, Herlint couldn't pay me, but I was able to live on checks I got from the Kansas City Star. $11 $11 for straight pieces and between 18 and 21 bucks for a Sunday spread complete with photos. Not much, but the Cronin was 70000 to the dollar, and for $350,000 Cronin, you lived pretty good. There we see Hemingway once again romanticizing and exaggerating the poor conditions of his former life before Pauline. And I think that's about as much background information that I should give on The Snows of Kilimanjaro. It's very much ample space to... Decide what bread should we turn this fascinating background into the Snows of Kilimanjaro sandwich? Well, I think it's time we turn it into... Well, let's think about this. <laughs> no, I'm not flipping pages. You're flipping pages. What? I'm not searching through my notes. What? No. Ah, oh, there we go. Uh, I just thought of it. So, at first I thought of turning him into multi-grain bread, but seeing that the, st- the Oh, the Places You'll Go sandwich was also constructed of multigrain bread, albeit fairy bread, I decided against this, and I've decided instead on whole wheat bread. My justification is that for Hemingway, who at the time of being Pauline's wife, he considered himself white bread, rather than the humble brown bread when he was with Hadley, he at least, during the snows of Kilimanjaro, managed to prove that he is whole wheat that he still has that beautiful, enriching wholesomeness to him, wholesome and nutritious profoundness to him by writing this short story. Because he wrote it diversely, honestly, and there is no healthier form of prose, in my opinion. So even though he thought himself burnt out, by reflecting on himself being burnt out and has been, he proved himself better than he ever was. And I think that's a whole wheat bread, if you ask me. And on to the meat, the substance. What makes the snows of Kilimanjaro the snows of Kilimanjaro? I pulled this summary with my own footnotes from a site called ENotes, a comprehensive guide to short stories, the critical edition. As the story opens, the speaker, later identified as Harry, is proclaiming that something is painless. It soon reveals that Harry and his wife, Helen, are encamped somewhere near Mount Kilimanjaro, which, at nearly 20,000 feet, is Africa's highest mountain. The epigraph that I read at the beginning of this, before I went on my Kilimanjaro expedition myself, describes the snow-capped mountain, mentioning that the name for its western summit is translated from local Maasai language as the House of God. Something this little summary has uh, left out is that he very quickly um, explains that the it that is painless is death and that it has obsessed him for all of his life and he is ultimately disappointed because the pain is gone and all he has to do is wait. And to to be honest, this writer, Harry, without writing, which he feels he can no longer do, he feels infertile and he feels that life is not worth living. Extensive dialogue at the beginning of the story reveals that the speakers, husband and wife, have a combative relationship. Harry has ceased to be in love with Helen, In fact, perhaps he never did, although she adores him. In Harry's dialogue, one quickly detects a deep-seated underlying anger and a contempt for not just Helen, but all women. I would disagree with this summary on that point. He he definitely has a contempt for Helen in terms of, before quickly retracting his wares and berating of her internally, she serves as a kind of lightning rod, something for him to blame in terms of him losing his talent, which he quickly admits that it's his own damn fault that he was lazy and he let what he calls his talent dull like a blade unused. Indeed, Harry feels and expresses guilt about the deterioration of his relationship with his wife, who has quite willingly put her considerable fortune at Harry's disposal. The rub is that the comfortable life that Helen has provided seems to have robbed Harry of the motivation he needs to write. Once again, he quickly admits that this is not the case that he himself destroyed his talent. Harry and Helen have left their superficial rich friends behind in Paris, where they are pursuing their inconsequential lives. And uh, this is another footnote. uh, Instead, he decides to go to Africa, where he feels like he was most himself back in his poorer days, when he first went hunting, when he first felt most alive. And he was hoping, like when a boxer goes to the mountains to train... That by going to Africa and literally Mount Kilimanjaro, he would burn the fat from his soul. Harry toys with the idea of writing about the idle rich, viewing himself as a sort of spy in their territory. To write the rich right, as he would have put it, and as he kind of views Fitzgerald as doing. It is soon revealed that Harry is on his deathbed, suffering from gangrene that is moving rapidly from his lower legs to other parts of his body. He and Helen, along with their African servant, Molo, are stranded in this remote part of Tanganyika because an inept driver failed to check the oil in their truck, causing it to burn out a bearing and become inoperable. Their only hope now is that a plane will land on their compound and fly Harry to a medical facility. Although, throughout their combative dialogue between husband and wife, Harry seems to not give a damn about the plane. All throughout this... There are vultures lurking around the camp, which Harry is eyeing suspiciously, waiting, as waiting for him to die. And, throughout the story, as he passes in and out of consciousness, he finds that there's a hyena circling his campsite. Hyenas are known to devour on corpses. Harry has gangrene because he ignored a thorn prick to his knee some days earlier. As his wound festered and became swollen, he treated it with a mild solution of carbolic acid, which proved to be too little too late. The gangrene kept one step ahead of Harry's attempts to thwart its progress. Again, in my opinion, from the way Harry's dialogue kind of plays out and the way he kind of views himself, part of me thinks that Harry deliberately tried not to do as much as he could have to stop the gangrene. Maybe, in his mind, the one big adventure left was death. Very much Peter Pan style. Throughout the story, Harry uh, wanders between consciousness and unconsciousness. His conscious periods become shorter and shorter. Unconsciousness reveries of his past fill his mind and reveal a great deal about his past. The passages during the unconscious state are printed in italics except for the one very near the end, spoilers, in which Harry hallucinates about the plane coming to rescue him. In fact, when I first read it, I thought the plane had come, and I thought my boy's greatest fear had come to pass. He was to live. Alas, as it turns out, Harry's illusion of the plane is just that, an illusion. In the end... Helen has Harry's cot carried into their tent. Before long, she tries to rouse him, but cannot. She becomes aware that his breathing has stopped, just as a hyena, a carnivore that feeds on dead animals, howls outside their tent. A great way to interpret the symbolism of both Helen and the hyena is that they represent his fandom, both sides of it, in that the hyena, you know, a carnivore that will feed on his corpse, the overly critical side of his fandom the ones that were just waiting for him to die, whether to dissect and rip apart his writings and to more or less almost like debunk the legend of Hemingway rather than just enjoying his writing. And contrarily, Helen represents almost like the intellectual, phony side of his fandom, in which revered him to the point where to be a supporter of Hemingway was more of an intellectual prize rather than actually enjoying his writings for what it was. And having it personally relate to you. Another great metaphor in this is the gangrene of his leg. As a striking metaphor for his self-destruction and wasted potential as a writer, husband, and human being. Now he suffers more from his own chastisement than from the painless progression of the gangrene. Again, an example of how he feels stagnant and completely worthless without the ability of his writing. To him, living was writing. And that is as much true for Harry as it is for Hemingway himself. Ironically, though Harry dies, this story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, did a great thing to keep Hemingway going. Yet, his fatal infection deepens his insight, and a moment of lucidity replaces all his regrets and failure. The Snows of Kilimanjaro speaks to both altitude and attitude, how high we aim, the excuses we make, and what we ultimately settle for. Considering the massive delay that happened after completing my appetizer, I think it's very pertinent that we're covering this short story, because I aimed very high... In terms of my personal aspirations, not just with this podcast, which frankly is just a bit of passionate fun for me, but also how high I am generally for my lifetime, prime defense mechanisms of through humor right there, and the excuses I made in terms of trying to put this off. Because the longer I didn't do this, the more kind of confident I could be in my head at least that the fantasy of Delicious Word Sandwich as a big success, and in fact, just moreover myself as a big success, would stand true. What we ultimately settle for? Well, this. Frankly, I'm enjoying making this, and I hope you're enjoying listening. This is a mighty ultimate thing to settle for. Tis earnest. Tis fun. One final point I'll make about the writing of this plot in this summary. Sorry, it's not as whimsical and wacky as the Oh, The Places You'll Go summary, but as fun as that was, uh, it didn't really convey what the plot of <laughs> that story was. And it took a hell of a long time to write. It was like, instead of a tight 5 on stage, it was a tight 20 for Spoofy. Yeah, but one of the, my favourite things about this story is the way he describes death as this kind of weight. It's not an oppressive weight. And, yeah, when as death is approaching, and before, you, before the plane hallucination and the great big hint, is this weight just gently rests like a cat on his chest. And when that wait passes, that's when Harry has died. And it's such a beautifully written, subtle moment. If you zone out for a second, you miss it. But if you don't, if you're engaged, you really feel that this almost fearless kind of confrontation with death and passing. Literally quite easily passing away. Yeah, I thought that was nice. It moved up closer to him still, and now he could not speak to it. And when it saw he could not speak, it came a little closer. And now he tried to send it away without speaking. But it moved in on him, so its weight was all upon his chest. And while it crouched there and he could not move or speak, he heard the woman say, Buana is asleep now. Take the cot up very gently and carry it into the tent. He could not speak to tell her to make it go away, and it crouched now, heavier, so he could not breathe. And then, while they lifted the cot, suddenly it was all right and the weight went from his chest. So I wasn't far off. One final comment I would love to make is how well the post-death of Harry is done. It's the only moment it steps out from Harry's mind and it's when the hyena stopped whimpering in the night and started to make a strange, human, almost crying sound. And this line reminds me of the line because the hyena representing these carnivorous, relentless and really quite merciless fans. This line reminds me of um, the Orson Welles uh, documentary They'll Miss Me When I'm Dead. Okay, let's move on. Ah, I should probably allocate a meat to this delicious word sandwich, I nearly forgot. Good first episode. So, for the meat, I was thinking, because it's just so dense, as Hemingway said, there were enough material for several novels in this one short story, and as I mentioned, if you zone out for even a second, you potentially miss one of those novels. Like I remember there's this short side story with a boy who works for a man like a farmer and this farmer just wails on him all the time and eventually the, the boy broke and killed his employer and when the body was discovered the boy was promised food and shelter and water and warmth really back in the town only to be arrested once getting there. But the boy was so happy during that journey and it struck me how the promise of a comfortable future and a brighter tomorrow can give meaning to the present no matter how dire the suffering or how guilty one may be about what they've done. It just completely wipes it away. So because of this, because of this denseness in the material and because, you know, it's Ernest Hemingway. And while I don't advocate for his caricature reputation as pure machismo because it's not true. He had a very sensitive and feminine side to his writing. I I thought, a good steak, a nice, rare, chewy steak that you can really savor. If you don't appreciate the steak, if you just eat it, because, you know, a rare steak can go down quite easily if you're not paying attention. Suddenly, you've missed the steak, and you've missed the abundance of flavor and wonder that comes in on a good, rare steak. So, that is the meat I have chosen. In a moment, we will go to cheese with our characters Harry and Helen. Forgive me, I won't be analysing the hyena too much for the cheese segment. Alright, see you after the break. Hello, dear friends and kiyotis. Yes, you can distinct between the two, and if you're ready to become a Kyote, you're more than welcome to, my friend. To seize the cheese, we will be analysing the two main characters of the Snows of Kilimanjaro, Harry and Helen. The characters are very realistic. They're some of the more developed characters in any of Hemingway's stories, especially when we're thinking about Helen, one of Hemingway's more developed women characters, uh, loosely based, as I've said, on Hemingway's second wife, Pauline, with attributes of Hadley and other women that Hemingway knew throughout his life. So a little bit about Harry, but most of it has been said. He was a writer, pretty much explicitly based on Hemingway himself. As he lies near death on a cot near, in the African wilds, his thoughts go back to his life experiences. Hemingway skillfully develops Harry's character by use of his cutting words to his wife, his memories of other women, and other times. It is attitude towards death, and his ceaseless drinking, even when he knows it is harmful. This portrays what Harry is and what his gangrene symbolizes, his gangrene symbolizing his gradual moral and physical and spiritual decay that he himself has let happen to him. The main character's wife, as I said, is based off Hemingway's second wife, Pauline, and in the story, Harry feels that he has been bought by his wife's money, and is a feeling he can barely tolerate. He feels impotent, he feels like a phony, and a fraud. Hemingway's hero, when faced with death, looks back on his life and tries to make sense of it. He sees a talent destroyed by not using it, by drinking too much, and by laziness caused by too much money all of which throughout the story he directly, eventually, attributes to himself and his own folly. Most of all, he is filled with regret, some regret for being selfish in his dealings with others. This is a special moment of self-reflection on Hemingway's part, as I believe he had many virtues, but one of them was not selflessness. Like myself, he had a tremendous ego, and he could be both insensitive and just straight-up selfish. But it's our willingness to accept this, and to reflect on it and be aware of it, that allows us to grow and hopefully be better, better people. But mostly, though, he felt regret that he will not be able to write all the stories he thought he had time to relegate to a letter day. He had put away the most important parts of his life, waiting for another time to put the emotions and thoughts on paper, and now it is too late. And it's an important thing, for, I think, when you start writing, that you start learning what you're able to write and do justice to and what you're not ready to. There are some stories that I myself have put off because I felt I was not emotionally ready or mature enough to do the story justice, but at the same time I can make a mistake in which I put a story off because I'm scared to confront those emotions. Rather than I'm not ready, it's more I'm not brave enough to do it yet. Maybe I never would be, and that's an issue that Hemingway himself addresses, and it's something that I think every writer needs to address when There is a time to put a story on the shelf, maybe you just don't have the tools yet or you're still growing in your craft as a writer, but there are other times when emotionally it's up to you to be brave enough to take the plunge and to take a risk, even if it might not be the best story. There are several stories that I've had to rewrite completely, but I'm glad I tried even when I wasn't technically ready because then I proved at least it wasn't out of cowardice that I wasn't writing a story. Even though you're sitting alone in a room putting pen to paper or a keyboard or a typewriter if you're a hipster like me, writing is a brave thing. Finally, the theme of facing death with courage and grace under pressure, Hemingway's code of living, is dealt with from the beginning of the story when Harry admits that death is painless. He has lived in fear of death all his life, even been obsessed with it, and now that he is faced with it, he finds he is too tired to fight it. He accepts it. Still, he wished he had written about the things that had affected his life the joy of skiing, the emotional upheaval of the first true love, Hadley, the unquestionable loyalty to an old soldier. He has learnt too late that every day counts and that tomorrow might not come. Every day should be lived to the fullest. This is a very poignant story, and it's actually a form of logotherapy in which you envision yourself at the end, and you, you reflect on your current life as if it's already happened. And by doing that, you get the sensation of living your life for the second time, remembering your former life and it feeling as if you did everything wrong the first time. So suddenly you're inspired with this great sense that you can fix your life and you can make all the right decisions. I think in a way Hemingway was doing that with Harry in the Snows of Kilimanjaro because he's reflecting very much on his current life as if it's ending. And he's using that as a chance to reflect on himself. And from then on, I think he made much better decisions because then he wrote my favorite book of all time, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and achieved a lot more in his life, which was rather glorious. Nevertheless, back to Harry. By the end of it, the story, he thinks of his wife very warmly, even deciding to use her name at the very end. And I think he grew a bit, but at the same time, he was very tired. He's a tired old slice of cheese. And I think he's just burnt out. Well, whereas I think Hemingway had much more to do beyond his death, I think Harry's different. Harry is someone who is burnt out, who has been worn before dying. And because, as I just said, the stories that were on the shelf, it was more laziness and fear that stopped him from writing those stories rather than not having enough time and being worn out and being dead before he got worn out. So, being a worn out old cheese, I would say he's a very smoky, burnt out cheese. Much like, hmm, what was that cheese that I was thinking of and not searching through my notes to get? Hmm, what was it? Hmm, I wonder what it was. God damn it. Blue, no, it's not blue cheese, it's a smoked cheese. I'm sure there's a good smoked cheese out there. Ryden's a delicious word sandwich to give me a good smoked cheese. I've had a good smoked, uh, brie? Is that a thing? Give me a nice smoked cheese. Because these characters are old and cynical. If not physically, at least in their souls. To some, they still taste good. But to many, their time as cheese is over. And their journey to mold has begun. Alright. Yeah. Cheese that has given up being cheese, is, yet is still on the shelf. Well, that's what I wrote a little while ago. And I forgot I wrote that. That's for blue cheese. I'm going to change my answer and say that they are a nice smoked cheese, which I think will go better with the rare steak. Uh, Before moving on, I would like to analyse Helen. As I've said, she's one of Hemingway's more developed women characters, up there with uh, Lady Brett Ashley and Pilar from For Whom the Bell Tolls and Maria. He gave her a rounded background. She had been devoted to her first husband, who died just as their two children had grown and left home, leaving her quite alone and needing to build a new life. Rather than having an empty nest syndrome, she turned to drink, horses, and books. Hemingway writes that she couldn't go to sleep unless she had writ- read a book and been thoroughly drunk afterwards. Then she took lovers, at which point, once she had the lovers, she didn't need to drink anymore to sleep, but still not fulfilling. When one of her children was killed in a plane crash, she was devastated and scared. She no longer wanted lovers. She wanted a solid relationship with someone she could respect as well as prize, And so she found Harry. or As Harry would think of it, she bought Harry. She admired his books and thought his life exciting. She had started a new life with him, and in turn, he had lost his old life. That's a very not-subtle allusion to him giving up Hadley, his son Bumby, and his poor life in Paris for a life abroad of riches and emptiness. Yeah, I'd say she's also burnt out. She's also, you know, she devotes herself to Harry, but... She's devoting herself to an illusion of Harry. Harry is this great writer, which he clearly doesn't feel like he is anymore. She's fallen in love with an illusion, and she's clinging to that to keep going, whereas he was in love with his own self and his own journey as a writer, which he gave up. And going to Africa was one one last chance to believe in that illusion, and the gangrene kind of took that away from him, so he's decaying. So... If you can smoke blue cheese, I guess that's the best of both worlds, but for your taste buds and mine, I think we'll choose a nice smoked cheese for the both of them. And that's the cheese. So, so far on our delicious word sandwich for the snows of Kilimanjaro, we have whole grain bread, a rare steak, and smoked cheese. And if you can tell me which kind of smoked cheese is the best one for these characters, I'd be eager to hear it, because at the moment, I've got smoked blue cheese which I hope is tastier than gangrene. Alright, next up we got sauce. And by sauce, I of course mean the spread, and by the spread, I of course mean themes. Now, we've mostly addressed themes, so this will be more of a light touch-up, and then we'll summarize it into an ingredient and move on to seasoning. Final thoughts. More after this break. I hope you're enjoying this great return and first episode of Delicious Word Sandwich and welcome back to delicious word sandwich i'm old maddie and now we're covering the spread and themes so when i left i talked about uh, a lot about the hyenas feeding on the dead animals and harry is a morally bankrupt uh, ex-rider with his gangrene rotting his soul self-devouring and like belmonte and the sun also rises he was exceptionally talented, but appalled by his audience, represented as Helen and the Hyena, both of whom weep at his death. And finally, there's a sustained m- metaphor of the Snow Leopard. There's a lot of themes covered in this book, and I don't think even, I don't think I could really cover it fully in one episode, especially with my kind of on-the-go, winging-it, cool guy nature. I'm not a dork. Cool guys read books. Moving on. A great contrast was done between the mountain of Kilimanjaro itself and the snow leopard that died upon it, more on that in a bit. Contrasting the mountain that symbolizes purity to the plains of Africa filled with vultures and hyenas and him, I guess, is the plains of corruption. And we see that he sees himself more as the snow leopard in that, for some unknown reason... For something that cannot be explained, he felt compelled to climb to ridiculous heights up to the house of God and seeking purity. Maybe purity in the best kind of sense of writing, like maybe he was hoping for a purity of writing that achieved a perfect picture of the world as he saw it, or maybe he was looking for purity of the soul, like he felt like he could truly feel valid and defeat whatever complexes he had by achieving some sort of higher purity. It really is one of Hemingway's most artistically successful stories because it has so many different interpretations, and I really can't do it justice. Anyway, I think it's time for me to choose a spread for this here sandwich. I've decided to choose salted peanut butter, extracted from once proud peanuts, living too long after the fact, now reliant on others to achieve their full potential, all while hoping that they will achieve some higher purity like being put on our peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Unfortunately, like our good friend Harry, it is not to be, and his salted peanut butter ass is going on our steak sandwich, for he is worn out, and before that, he will be dead. Yeah. Finally, we have the seasoning, the last coup de gras for our sandwich of death. I call it that because of the pervading themes of death within the snows of Kilimanjaro, not because the sandwich is poisonous. Unless your steak, of course, is too rare. And your bread is too rare. And your... Salted peanut butter is too rare. And what other ingredient did we have on this? Smoked cheese, that's right. Your, oh, the blue cheese will definitely kill you. Anyway, final thoughts on the short story. As I've said, I think it's one of the most artistically triumphant tales that Hemingway's ever spun. And I think it has really well-drawn characters, even just the dialogue between Helen and Harry. Though it is quite brutal, it flows, it pops. You can't help but be drawn into it. And even when it takes complete 180s, like one minute they're like, I love you, I love you. And then he just flies off the handle and calls her a bitch and blames her for everything wrong in his life. And then immediately retracts that, but only in his head because by quarreling, he finds the time passes faster. So it's this weird, horrible final moment in which a man tries to accept death gracefully but can't quite do it. It really is a triumphantly human story as well as it is artistic. And I know that sounds mega pretentious but I'm a pretentious kind of guy and I think this story has a lot of merit in its humanity and its earnestness. So thank you Ernest Hemingway who fun fact he hated his own name Ernest because it reminded him too much of Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest which I've always found quite ironic, considering his great emphasis on honesty. So for the seasoning, I chose something a bit uh, off the mark, a bit more unorthodox in order to fit the themes. I chose Sharina's Soul. Colorful Salt is what it's commonly called. It is a cynical story that is eventually accented with hope to finish one's purpose and live a fearless acceptance of death. Because as I've said, this story, by employing this logotherapy method, probably unintentionally, Hemingway has, definitely unintentionally, because logotherapy wasn't invented until after World War II, Hemingway has created a story that really is about living life to the fullest and enjoying the days you have and reflecting on yourself and realizing your faults and making a change so that when the time comes, you're not quarreling with the woman you claim to love in order just to make the time pass before you die because you can't stand the waiting for death. You face your death as Harry did in his final moments, peacefully. Actually, he kind of panicked. Well, as Harry would have hoped to face his final moments, peacefully and calmly, with grace, under pressure. And that, my friends, is the snows of Kilimanjaro. In conclusion, the Snows of Kilimanjaro delicious word sandwich is constructed of whole wheat bread, a rare steak, smoked blue cheese, or just smoked cheese if you're sane, salted peanut butter, and Sharina Sol slash colorful salt. These combined create the perfect interpretation, translation, and amalgamation that is the essence of the Snows of Kilimanjaro by Ernest Hemingway. Well, my kiotis, that's my dinner, and I'll have to start thinking about what I'm gonna have next while trapped in this demon spawned hellhole. Oh, I don't know. I don't mean you, Brederick. I don't mean you. You're great. How about you go rustle up that steak for us, little buddy? You don't a demon? No, I don't think you a demon. I think you're delightful, Brederick. You're the only bread I need. <laughs> go get the steak. For our next episode, we will be analysing, critiquing, and converting the delicious word sandwich The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. It's a great book. It's deep. It's honest. I think Hemingway would have liked it. It's one of those great books that's so smart and so reputable that people have it on their shelf without even reading it, just to kind of show off a little bit. Frankly, I think it's human nature, especially bookworm nature, to collect books that you haven't read, and that pile just keeps growing. After all, you gotta keep your food stocks up. I'm old Matty. This has been a genuine pleasure, and I hope our next episode's real soon. Say goodbye to our Breadrick. Goodbye. Uh, oh, real nice. Well, farewell, my chiotes.